Did you come today to receive a word? How many of you came today to be blessed? How many of you came today to be a blessing? Hey, holla. Hey, listen, here's the deal. Today, I know Pastor Ian is bringing a word to you that I'm excited about, a word that God has placed within his spirit, a word that I know will not only resonate with him and with me and with our staff, but also with you. I believe God is going to speak to you through him. And so when he opens up his mouth today, what I need you to understand is that this is not a lecture. This is a sermon. So it's all right to holla. Everybody say holla. No, no. Holla. No, they're going to get it right, Ian, I promise. So when God says something to you through the mouth of Ian, listen, you're not praising him, you're praising a God. So I want you to put your hands together and welcome my friend, your friend, my buddy. Listen, my, my cohort in Christ. Come on, give it up for Ian. Yeah! Good morning. This wasn't part of the plan, but by special request of Pastor Kim, you can be seated. She leaned over and was like, let us sit down. So, hey, before we, uh, before we jump into anything else this morning, I do want to publicly say thank you to Pastor Mark for giving me this opportunity to speak to you guys this morning. We're celebrating Pastor Appreciation. And so the first service, there's not anything that, any, that he could do or say to make me feel more appreciated than to trust me with this responsibility this morning to, to share God's word with each of you. I'm very excited about what I believe that God has placed in my heart, and I can't wait to share it with you. But while we're talking about pastor appreciation, I just need to let you guys know something that I know you already know. But our pastor is an amazing man. He, his, his leadership, his vision, his humility, and his willingness to lead by example is just a continued inspiration to me, and I know it is the same to, to all of you. So when we're in this mode of pastor appreciation, before we do anything else this morning, can you just give our pastor a, a great big round of applause and let him know how much you appreciate him? Amen. So let's, let's um, open up our Bibles this morning, shall we? Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to hang out today. While you're, while you're kind of digging into your word or opening up your Bible app, let me kind of explain to you that Matthew chapter 9, we could preach an entire series just on the verses in Matthew chapter 9. As I, as I was preparing for this message, I kind of had this internal debate about whether we should start in verse 1 or verse 9. And every time I, I really kind of dig deep to get ready for a, a sermon, I'm always blown away by how much depth and meaning there is in every single verse of the scriptures. And so in the interest of doing God's word justice and also in the interest of leaving close to on time today, uh, we're going to start in verse 9 instead of verse 1 if that's okay with you. So, or even if it's not, because I didn't prepare for verse 1 through 8, so we're going to start in verse 9. So, anyways, verse 9 says, uh, and I'll be using the New Living Translation just because that's the, the version that speaks to me uh, the, the, the best. And it, it starts like this. It says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. 
The title of my message this morning is, I need a doctor. Right, I need a doctor. And, and when, when we talk about this phrase, uh, one of the things that kind of jumped to my mind is how, how many of you uh, enjoy going to the doctor? How many of you, let me ask this a different way. How many of you have ever had some sort of pain or issue or, or something where you felt like you probably should go to the doctor, but you basically just refused? You're like, I'm not going. Okay. Pretty much every human male in this room today should probably be raising our hands. But, and, and again, it's not just, man, and I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, very serious, like obviously oh, we need to get this checked out kind of stuff. I'm talking about the, the, the borderline stuff, like mm, I'm not going to go. And, you know, I've kind of, there's no data behind this, but as I was putting this message together, I kind of came up with two like main reasons why we would avoid going to the doctor when it comes to those kind of things where we probably should, or, or in my case, where our your wife thinks you should, but you're like, no, I'm okay. Anyway, so there's two kind of reasons that I came up with as far as why we uh, avoid going to the doctor. And the first one is that we just don't think we need it. You know, we've kind of convinced ourselves that, that we're fine. You know, you'll hear people say things like, it's just a bruise, or it's just a sprain, or it's just a severed limb, and I'll, I'll be all right. And so we kind of like avoid that, that way, or we feel, maybe we feel like seeking proper medical attention is a, is a sign of, of weakness, like, no, nah, man, I'm tough, I got this, you know, and that, man, that mindset, it kind of starts pretty young, uh, my son Liam, he's three and a half, and he inherited his head circumference from his father, so it's pretty uh, big, and so if he gets running that head, will get out in front of him, and he'll, he'll crash, and the very first thing he says every time he falls down is one of two things. Either he says, I'm fine, or I'm okay. Like he's he already at three and a half years old. He wants you to know he's got this. You know, I, I don't need any help. I'm good. All right? And, and so that's kind of where a lot of us are when it comes to that borderline stuff. Like, eh, I don't want to go to the doctor because I got this. I got it under control. And then the other end of the spectrum, as far as refusing to go to the doctor, is the people out there, and I know there are some of you out there, who you've gone on WebMD and you've diagnosed yourself with 83% of all diseases known to man. You're like, I've got that. Oh, my gosh, I've got that too. Oh, I'm going to die. And so... You know, those, those people are like overwhelmed with how many things they think might be wrong with them because they don't, so they don't want to go to the doctor because then the doctor's going to read off a list of 50 pages long of all the things that are uh, wrong with them. He's going to say, my official diagnosis is you're doomed. And so they're like, I'm not going because I don't want to hear that. Um, and I personally kind of have a little bit of, the, of stuff going on in both of these categories because uh, a couple weeks ago, my wrist was hurting really badly, and we didn't really know what was going on. My wife kept saying, you need to go to the doctor. You need to go to the doctor. And I was like, eh, I don't really want to go to the doctor, because what if he says that I need surgery, and I can't afford that, and I don't have time to get surgery? I'm just going to pretend like I'm fine, and it'll be all right. All right so that's kind of the one side. The other side is like, uh, you know what, Tiana, I got this because I Googled it. All right. And Dr. Google told me what I need to do, and it's under control now. So... It's kind of like, yeah, I, I don't want to do it because I don't want to admit that I need the help or maybe we're afraid that we're going to need more help than we, than we thought. So we, we, we resist that. And the problem with this is that for many of us, our unwillingness to seek help and even the reasons behind that unwillingness, it doesn't stop with the physical pain and suffering, but it extends into the realm of our social and emotional health and well-being. See, some of us bring this same, I've got this attitude 
to our relationship with Jesus. You know, we refuse to acknowledge any struggles or symptoms in our lives, and we pretend that we're the picture of perfect spiritual health because we can't let them know that there's anything wrong with us. I don't want anybody knowing that I've got these questions or these doubts or these struggles or that maybe my marriage isn't working exactly the way that it's supposed to be. I'm just gonna let. Every, I'm just gonna pretend like I've got this. I'm gonna put on a you know a happy face and go out in the world because I don't want anybody knowing that I've got anything wrong in my life. So I've, I've got this. Or maybe we're on the other side and we're acutely aware of every single thing that's going on. We don't ignore it. We obsess over it. We know all of the aspects of our struggles and our battles and everything that's going on inside our lives, but we still don't want to ask for help because we feel like, oh my gosh, if they found out everything that was wrong with me, they'd never want to talk to me again. They wouldn't want anything to do with me. They would look down on me. They would judge me. I can't let people know. I can't ask for help because I can't. Once people see all of the mess that's going on inside of me, they're going to walk away. And it's at this intersection of unwillingness to seek help that we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. We're going to kind of dig into these five verses and pull out some things that I really believe can be helpful to, to each of us here this morning. Whether you feel like you've got some spiritual sickness or not, I, 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 just bear with me. We're going to start in verse 9, which again says, As Matthew was walking along, he's, or, I'm sorry. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Now this Matthew is the same Matthew that wrote the book of the Bible that we're reading in today. And he is very clearly employed as a tax collector. And when you and I hear that term tax collector, we probably think of a guy, you know, with thick uh, glasses and a pocket protector and a calculator walking around. I'm here to audit you today. You're going to owe me lots of money. And, but that's not the, the, the picture that this is painting. It's something very different in the, the culture of Jesus' time because tax collectors were actually considered the lowest of the low. They were Jewish citizens who had con- contracted with the Roman government who, uh, to extract taxes from their fellow Jews. And what they would do is they would submit a bid for how much taxes they promised to collect. Then they would do everything that they could to collect a whole lot more than that. They would give the Roman government everything they had promised, and then they would line their own pockets with whatever was left over. And so naturally, their fellow Jewish citizens looked at them as you know, the lowest of the low. They were viewed by many as the worst kinds of humans. They would experience the same kind of rejection and disdain you would expect from somebody who was viewed that lowly. They would be disqualified from testifying um, in court or holding office. They would be often um, excommunicated from the synagogues, and they would be considered a disgrace to their families. This term tax collector that we read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, was not only synonymous with being a sinner, but they was considered one of the worst kinds of sinners that you could be. And yet, Jesus walks up to Matthew and says, follow me. He puts no conditions or expectations on this call. He simply invites Matthew to join his circle and become his disciple. We're going to look at that a little bit closer in a few moments. But for now, we'll move to verse 10, which says, Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Now, there's debate among theologians what this later means. Was it later that day, like a few hours later, or later that year, like several weeks or months had passed with Matthew spending time with Jesus? But one thing is clear from this passage. Matthew was so impacted by his encounter with Jesus that he wanted others to experience the same thing that he had. 
Matthew's decision to invite his friends from his old way of living, these disreputable sinners, to hear Jesus rather than isolate himself from them reminds us of an important truth in our walk with Christ. Saved people, save people. Now, here at Epicenter Church, you're more likely to hear us say save people, serve people, because service to others is uh, it's a core value of who we are. But it, saving pe- saved people do, in fact, serve people. They, they, they meet others with the love of Christ. But we also see from this passage that saved people play a role in saving others as well. Certainly, Matthew has no power to save anyone through his own strength. But what he does have is knowledge of the one who can save them. And he has a desire for them to meet this man so that they can be pulled from the same depths of sin that he was. And even more likely, it's, pro- it's very likely, I'm sorry, that the, the guests at this dinner party, the people that Matthew invited, would have been people who would not have sought after Jesus on their own because of their social status or because of the rejection that they consistently faced from other religious leaders. But because they were invited by someone they knew, someone in whose life they could see a tangible change. They could see that there was a difference in Matthew from the way he used to be from the time he started following Jesus. And because of that, they were much more intrigued and much more willing to uh, sit down for dinner with this man. And so I believe that this shows us that the way that we treat people from our past, once we have stepped into the future that God has called us to, will tell them more about God's love for them than any word we could ever say. I'll say that again because it's kind of a mouthful. The way that we treat people from our past after we have stepped into the future that God has called us to, says more about God's love for them than anything else ever could. And certainly there are certain situations and circumstances that would require us to move away from certain people or, or context in order to grow into the people that God has created us to be. But it doesn't mean we have to abandon them. We can still... Uh, We can still pray for those we've left behind. We can reach out to them from a distance if that requires. And then once we reach a point in our lives where where we're healthy, we can step right back into the place and try to reach them with the same love that we have been reached with. I remember growing up in the 1990s in the church that I grew up in, along with many other churches. And please don't take this as me speaking negatively about the, the, the church that I grew up with or any of these individuals. But there was this kind of unspoken edict amongst many churchgoers to not associate with the things or the people of this world. And, and many of you may go, well, yeah, that's, that's Paul. He says, you know, be in the world, not of the world. But what, what happened as I was growing up, at least the, the church culture I grew up in, is they took it to the ultimate extreme, uh, far beyond what Paul actually meant with this writing. You know, we, we were told that every single friend we had wasn't verbally spoken, but we were, we were kind of silently communicated to that every single friend we had should think like us, act like us, and believe exactly like us. Now, don't hear me say that there's something wrong with fellowshipping with like-minded Christian believers, because there's not. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that that is an integral part of strengthening our faith, but it also tells us that that cannot be the end-all, be-all of our faith. See, if all we ever do is come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and go to e-group and hang out with people who believe like us and act like us and think like us, then what kind of difference are we making in the world around us? I don't believe you. God, God changes us so that we can change the world. He rescues us so that we can rescue others. And he saves us so that we can reach out a lifesaver to those around us. Because saved people save people. 
One of my main responsibilities as the family life pastor here at Epicenter Church is to oversee our student ministries, 6th through 12th grade. And it is a job that I didn't, you know, when I, when I came on staff here at Episode of Church, that was not the job I thought that I would be getting. Uh, and and uh, for a variety of circumstances, it was dropped on my lap. And when I first kind of stepped into that role, I had a lot of trepidation about working with teenagers because I believed that they were uh, immature and sometimes irresponsible and sometimes even, you know, entitled. And after three years, though, of working with teenagers on a weekly basis, I can tell you guys that I was absolutely right. But I love teenagers because they are those things, but they're also passionate. They are energetic. They're enthusiastic. They're willing to take risks for what they believe in. They're willing to dig deep into why they believe what they believe and to continue to grow into the people that Jesus has created them to be. And I'm passionate about teenagers. I'm so thankful to you um, who, who allow me and the team that I lead to work with your students on a weekly basis because I'm just so passionate and excited about watching students live up to the purpose and the plan that God has called them to and created them for. You can ask any student who comes to Epic Students. I say that phrase at least once every single week. They're probably sick of hearing it out of my mouth. But it's what I'm all about. And I, and I mention this for two reasons. One to get in a shameless plug for Epic Students, which is Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, 6th or 12th grade. We'd love to see you there. But also, because I often tell my students, or your students, that as middle and high school students, they have a much greater opportunity to reach their classmates and friends than I as a pastor ever will. But the thing is that that doesn't stop when we graduate high school. See, myself and Pastor Mark and the rest of the staff here at Epicenter Church, we have dedicated our lives to sharing the gospel and impacting others with the love of Jesus Christ. But the people that you work with, the people that live in your neighborhood, the people that you interact with on a daily basis, the majority of them will probably never step foot inside this building or hear a sermon preached from this stage, but they will have conversations with you. And so you, in many ways, have a much greater opportunity to change the world right where you, at, where you are at than any of us as pastors will. Because you have this opportunity to, to speak life and love and grace and acceptance into the lives of the people that you interact with on a daily basis so that when the opportunity arises to bring up Jesus or to invite them to church, they'll be much more willing to listen to you. And think about this. What is the likelihood that any of Matthew's guests would have agreed to attend his party if he had begun to act as though he was better than them simply because of his role as Jesus' disciple? If he had begun to reject them because they still lived the way that he once did? But rather than being content with his salvation, happy to let God change his life and go on with the new life that he had, Matthew began to act as a bridge from Jesus to those who had left behind, exemplifying God's love for them so that they could have the chance to experience that same love firsthand because Matthew understood that saved people save people. And in verse 11, we see the heartbreakingly opposite side of this spectrum with the Pharisees. Verse 11 says, but when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? 
And the Pharisees use a word to describe these tax collectors and sinners because that is exactly what they thought of them, scum. The Pharisees were a sect of religious leaders who believed in complete separation from anyone and anything that they deemed unclean and who followed not only the Old Testament but also an oral tradition of rules and practices and rituals. They were all about performance and they strongly believed that they could live righteously enough to earn their way to eternal life in heaven. When you combine these beliefs with the understanding that in Jewish culture, sharing a meal with someone indicated intimacy or familiarity, you can see why the Pharisees were so taken aback by Jesus' willingness to to dine with scum, as they would put it. They were hoping for a Messiah who would be more concerned with political overthrow than meeting the needs of the lost and broken. And so when they saw Jesus interacting with these disreputable sinners, they, as one commentator put it, they concluded that he himself could not be righteous since he delighted in the company of abandoned people. But the thing is that the only reason these people were abandoned was that the Pharisees themselves had abandoned them. They thought themselves so much better than these sinners that even death would have been preferable to associating with them. And while I know that that's not a belief or a practice that any of us adhere to, I wonder how many times we've communicated the same to others through our actions, that maybe they're not quite as important as we are, that maybe we feel like we're better than them. How often have we made a similar statement with our behavior. See, the way that these Pharisees described the guests at Matthew's party is the way that many of them probably felt about themselves because they had been described that way so many times by so many people. And instead of reaching out with love and grace and mercy to the people who needed it most, the Pharisees chose to abandon them. And so they're appalled when this self-proclaimed Messiah would dare share a meal with such scum. In verse 12, Jesus responds to them by saying, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. His response to the Pharisees shows that he is not concerned about those whose life is most put together, but rather those who are most in need. Jesus himself says in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and to save those who are lost. And this is exactly what he is trying to do here by dining with Matthew and his group of disreputable sinners. And we'll come back to verse 12 in a moment. But I want us to jump to the first part of verse 13, which says, where Jesus proclaims to the Pharisees, he says, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. First of all, it would have been a blow to the Pharisees for Jesus to charge them with learning the meaning of a scripture because they believed they already knew everything there was to know about God's word. But yet Jesus is not trying to you know, call them out or, 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 or embarrass them in front of others. He's really just looking at them and saying, guys, 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 you're doing it wrong. You don't get it. This is not what it's all about. He gives them a direct quote from Hosea 6, 6. But what I believe he's really trying to get them to understand is that there is in fact a difference between doing God's word and living God's word. These Pharisees were so caught up with looking good and being righteous and following the letter of the law that they missed the point of what that law was all about. Jesus here is not saying that sacrifice is unimportant because as a matter of fact, at this time, sacrifice was still required to have any sort of relationship with God. It was important, but what he's saying is that if sacrifice is important, then how much more important is it to show mercy? 
follow the rules and, and complete the rituals. Yes, that's fine. But even more than that, show mercy, love others, be compassionate. Because essentially these Pharisees were so obsessed with doing God's word that they had failed miserably at living God's word. They'd gotten so good at going through the motions that they had lost sight of why the motions ever existed in the first place to facilitate a relationship between a creator and his creation. And so they abandoned an entire segment of that creation for the sake of doing God's word. Hosea 6.6, the verse that Jesus quotes in verse 13 says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. This verse seems to scream out the very same truth that Jesus is attempting to communicate to the Pharisees. If we really know God, if we're doing more than simply going through the motions, we will do everything we can to love others with the same kind of love with which he loved us. And these Pharisees were great at doing the right thing. If they went to church in our modern culture, they would be the ones who raised their hands the highest and sang out the loudest and gave the most. And every single time the doors were open, they would be here. And us as casual outside observers would look at them and say, oh, that's what being a Christian is all about. They've got it all together. I want to be like them someday. But later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Because they're beautiful on the outside with their actions, but they're disgusting and rotten on the inside because of their unwillingness to care about anyone but themselves. And again, I doubt that any one of us in this room would consciously say that we believe that we can perform our way into deserving eternal life. But if you're anything like me, there are moments in your lives where you forget that and you begin to robotically go through the motions where we lose sight of the why and focus so much on the what that when we look outside of ourselves and see others who maybe aren't doing the what as well as we are but the but those others maybe have a better focus on the why we get confused like why are we lumped in the same boat with them i'm doing all of these things we're doing god's word but how well are we living it in the remainder of verse 13 jesus closes his rebuke to the Pharisees by saying, For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. When we combine this with verse 12, where he says healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do, we arrive at the point in our message where the title comes back into play. I need a doctor. In verse 12, Jesus declares through a metaphor the very reason he has come to earth to provide healing for the sin-sick soul, to provide hope for the hopeless peace, for the restless, and to put back the pieces of our broken hearts he's come to seek and to save those who are lost and that is why he is there at this dinner party with these disreputable sinners because sick people need a doctor a few minutes ago we discussed the two reasons why people tend to avoid visiting the doctor when they don't feel right physically and those reasons come back into play as we examine why we might not seek the kind of spiritual help we know we need We may be like the Pharisees and have convinced ourselves that there's absolutely nothing wrong with us. Or we may be like these disreputable sinners and not quite sure that we're going to qualify for God's grace and forgiveness. Or we may be somewhere in the middle. But the healing is what Jesus is offering to both groups in attendance at Matthew's party. He hoped that others would find hope by realizing what Matthew realized 
when he answered Jesus' call to follow him, admitting that we're sick is the first step towards being healed. So these disreputable sinners, they were sick with sin. They had an acute case, but they were aware of it. They were so aware of it, in fact, that it shaped the way they viewed themselves and the way that they viewed the world. They were worried, in fact, that they were too sick to ever be healed, too far gone to ever be saved. And yet here was a man himself perfect without condemnation or judgment, offering only love and acceptance. And by sitting down to dinner with them, by breaking all the rules of decorum and doing something so culturally taboo, Jesus was saying to them the exact same thing he's saying to us now, that he already knows our condition. And the reason he has come is to offer healing. And if you are one of those who who believes that you are too far gone, too messed up, too screwed up, you've done too many things wrong to ever qualify for grace, if that's you, then you would approach Dr. Jesus expecting to be told, I'm sorry, there is nothing I can do. But if we will be honest with him, if we will admit our sickness and begin to Request healing. This instead is what we will hear. He'll say, I already know how messed you are, messed up you are. I've already seen the x-rays and read all the files. I know everything that's wrong with you. I've already seen the pieces and the parts of your life that need putting back together. And guess what? That's why I'm here. And because Jesus isn't just any kind of doctor, he'll continue on and he will say to you, I'm here to heal you because I love you. I don't love some future version of you or the person that you wish you were or wish you could have been if you had made a couple different choices down the road. I love you, the right now messed up, broken, battered, hurting person that you are here today inside this building. That's who Jesus loves. That's who Jesus came for. And that is who he is calling into a a life-changing relationship with him. And if the disease of these disreputable sinners was life-threatening, then the Pharisees had suffered from ignorance so long that their case had become terminal. They believed that they had it all figured out, that they didn't need God's grace to make it to their destination. They missed the fact that their contempt for the sins of others was the greatest symptom of their own sickness of self-righteousness. Two of my favorite verses in the entire Bible are Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. I'm going to read verse 23 to you first. It says this, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short. There's no way to take the original Greek and manipulate this word all to mean, well, actually, it only means about 95.724% of all. No, it's all y'all. We have all fallen short. Everybody, you, me, Pastor Mark, the Pharisees, everyone. We've all fallen short. Nobody but Jesus has ever lived a life that is perfectly worthy of heaven. But what happens is we fall into the comparison trap and we look at the people around us and say, well, I'm way better than him. I used to read this verse, Romans 3.23. I used to get defensive. (laughs) I'd be like, not me. 
I haven't fallen short. Look at how much better I am than that guy. Look, man, I do all these things. Look at my checklist of the stuff that I do every single day. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I help people. I tithe. Look, man, I'm, I got this. We've all fallen short. And there's a theologian named Hanley. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Let's just call him Hanley. So Handley, maybe he was a doctor. Dr. Handley, let's go with that. He explains Romans 3.23 this way. He says this. He says, prostitutes, murderers, and liars have all fallen short. But so have you. They may be at the bottom of a well. And you may be at the top of a mountain. But you are no more able to touch the stars than they are. And so, a verse that used to make me feel defensive now brings me more joy than almost any verse in the Bible because what it says is it doesn't matter where I'm at on the sliding scale that we as humans have invented. We're all messed up and we're all in the same boat. We've all got the same sickness and we all have access to the same cure. So this morning, you might be feeling like you're at the top of a mountain and you're looking down at the people at the bottom of the well and say, I can't believe that anybody would ever dare lump me in with them because look how far I've come. I'm not who I was anymore. And you're not. And thank God for that. But you had really nothing to do with it. And even if you're here at the top of the mountain, you're never going to get to the stars on your own. Or maybe you came in this morning feeling like you're trapped at the bottom of the well and it's your habit in life to look around you and look at the people outside of the well or the people at the top of the mountain and begin to say, oh, woe is me. I'll never reach the level that they're at. I'll never do the things that they have done. I'll never have the kind of faith that they have. I'll never be the kind of person that they are. I'll never qualify. I'm going to be stuck inside this well. And even if I get out, I'll never make it to the mountain but the problem the, the, the beauty of this verse is we've all fallen short so whether you're at the bottom of the well or the top of the mountain we all need Jesus and that's it when we finally admit our weakness that's when we get access to God's strength When we admit our sickness, we gain access to God's healing. When we admit our weakness, we gain access to God's strength. Let me take a quick time out for just a moment from talking about spiritual sickness and struggles of sin and self-righteousness and hurt and pain and all. Let me just tell you, sometimes life sucks. Whether you believe in Jesus or, or you don't, sometimes life's just not any fun. And sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we, we may not be struggling with any sin at that moment. We may not have any real sin sickness in our lives. We may, be in, we may find ourselves in a point where we're not self-righteous. We're not looking down from a mountaintop judging those at the bottom of the well. But we're also not trapped in the bottom of the well looking desperately wishing we could be at the top of the mountain. We're just here and we're trying to follow Jesus. And we know that we're never going to be perfect. And we know we need his healing every day. But life still is hard sometimes. But when you admit your weakness, you gain access to his strength. You heard Rodney mention um, 
Tiana and my daughter Lauren, and she was born with uh, with a cleft lip and palate. And in the first three seconds that we saw that, I was terrified. And then three seconds later, I realized, oh, I don't need to worry because I have access to God's strength. You've heard Pastor Kim say that there are, there are nights when she screams at God because she doesn't understand what he's doing with the things that are going on with her mother. But every single time she gets, finds herself in that place, she comes back to the realization that, okay, I can be upset. I can understand that life's hard, but I don't need to worry because in my weakness, I have access to God's strength. Going back to the sickness that many of us are suffering from. Verse 23 is like a hammer drop. Boom. You've all messed up. None of you are good enough. Get out of here. And then verse 24 jumps right back by saying, yet. Yet. God freely and, de- freely and graciously declares that you are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. And so, see, even though we're messed up, even though we're sick, even though how, whether we're on the mountain or in the well, we'll never be good enough to deserve it on our own. The thing is, we don't have to deserve it on our own because it's already been done for us. Yet, God declares that we are righteous. It doesn't have anything to do with you or me or what we've done or haven't done. It's all because God in his grace and mercy declares that we are righteous. And I want to close this morning by looking at verse 9. I know I'm running out of time. I told Pastor Mark that I needed, I needed him to give me some time and he didn't. So I'm going to take some of yours this morning. Not, not much, I promise. I want to watch football too. Matthew chapter 9 says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Two other gospels, Luke chapter 5 and Mark chapter 2, tell this exact same story of Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector. But in those two stories, they use the word, the name Matthew to identify, or I'm sorry, Levi to identify Matthew. There's a lot of theories about why that is, but one of the most popular is that they were trying to spare their friend the indignity of being associated with who he used to be. So when they list the disciples, they use the name Matthew, but when they tell this story about his sin-stained past, they use the word Levi. But Matthew here in his gospel leans right into it. He says, Matthew the tax collector. In In chapter 10, where he's listing all 12 of the disciples, he again identifies himself explicitly as Matthew the tax collector. He says, that is who I was, y'all. But it ain't who I am no more. And so I want to share with you very quickly how I imagine Matthew would communicate his experience with Jesus to one of his fellow sinners that he was inviting to the dinner party. This is how I imagine that conversation would go. He'd walk up to his friend and he'd say, hey man, look, I was a tax collector. I was a thief. I was an extortionist. I was a sinner. And not only that, but when Jesus called me, I was doing the very thing that made me so despicable. The thing that earned me that disdain of others. He walked up to me and said, follow me and be my disciple. He could see who I was. He could see what I was doing, but he still called me. You know, he didn't even put any conditions or ex- ex- exceptions or exclusions on that call. He didn't say, hey, when you stop doing this or as soon as you start acting like that, then you can follow me. He just said, follow me. 
right there in front of everyone. He gave me a chance I never thought I'd have and an opportunity I knew I didn't deserve. He offered me grace and love and forgiveness and hope and a second chance. And I want you to come to this dinner party because you can have the same thing. With Jesus, it's not about who you are or what you've done. It's not about your past or about your accomplishments. It's about who he is and what he has done for you. His love and forgiveness will make you new. He took who I used to be and made me who I am. You know, Matthew is obviously dead and gone. That was 2,000 years ago. We can't go to his dinner party. Lord knows that'd be some rotten food if we could. But that call, that invitation is still open to every single one of us. Whether we suffer from the guilt and the pain and the hurt of our past and we just believe that we're too sick to be healed, that's not true because God has grace for us. Or maybe we don't really, didn't really realize before today that we needed any grace because we thought, yeah, I got this. But now we understand that maybe we were suffering from just a little bit of self-righteousness. That's okay because God has grace for us. Or maybe we're not on either end of those spectrum. We're just going through a spot in life where it's hard. God has grace for us. When we acknowledge our sickness, we gain access to his healing. When we admit our weakness, we gain access to his strength. When we are honest about who we, who we are, God can begin to change us into who he has created us to be. He is here and he is saying to every single one of us, follow me and be my disciple. And when we answer that call, be it for the first time or the 400th time, when we accept that invitation, when we enter into a true relationship with him, he can finally say to us, you were a sinner, but by my grace, you are righteous. You were broken, but through my love, you are made new. You were dirty, but because of my sacrifice, you are clean. You were sick, but because of my willingness and ability to empower to heal you, you are healed. 